welcome to Hypnotic History, the podcast about 20th century life in the United States. I'm Ashley. And I'm Logan. And today we're talking about Valentine's. According to the U.S. Greeting Card Association, over a billion Valentines are exchanged each year. I would believe that. Yeah. It's extensive. Well, especially when you consider uh, all of the elementary school classes. Yes. Where the kids are giving a Valentine to every single person in the class. I wonder if those count as one because they come in a pack or if they count Ooh. as like 30. <laughs> yeah. Does the box count as one? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I remember doing that as a kid. Do you remember yes, the classroom? And I'm wanting to think that we also had to like, it was like a craft project beforehand. Yes. We'd build our little box or envelope, like a mm-hmm. something to hang on the desk to... Uh, yeah. I'm wanting to think we had boxes. I think we brought in a shoebox and yes. covered it in construction paper. And then that was what you went around, dumped your Valentines into. I, I did the same thing, and I always got really excited. And then once I had all the Valentines, it's like, well, what do I do with this? <laughs> it was always a big letdown. I don't know what I thought was going, to happen. was going to happen. But then I had all these little, like, I don't know, cheapy cardboard Valentines, and they did nothing for me. However, in first grade, my first grade boyfriend gave me a long-stemmed rose. He really needs to ease up there. He's setting <laughs> high expectations. And so little did I know that I was going, my Valentine's days were going to peak in first grade. <laughs> that, that's a pretty big expectation there. I could imagine the next few years would be a little let down. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they were. It gave me unrealistic expectations about what Valentine's Day would be like. <laughs> Although, uh, when we first started dating, you sent me flowers. I did. Sent you flowers to your dorm room. Yes, and I think you it was did. the first time you ever got flowers to your dorm room. Mm-hmm, it was. Because I think you said the receptionist was like, oh, room such and such has flowers. Yep. And I was very embarrassed and very pleased in all, equal manner. All, all at the same time. All at the same time. Uh, well, I was thinking since we're coming up towards Valentine's Day, uh, it got me thinking about what we were just talking about with classroom valentines. Uh, and I wondered how far back that practice went. And that kind of led me down a whole rabbit hole uh, of just the history of Valentine's Day cards in general. And like Christmas cards, which we already did an episode on, so go back and listen to that if you haven't already, Valentines are also largely British uh, in origin, and they also go back way further than the 20th century. Arguably, I think um, Valentines are probably older than Christmas cards, I think, um, because they go back way further than the Victorian era. And before even Valentine's cards, we have history of Valentine's just correspondence in general, uh, which is centuries old. And the earliest surviving piece is a message that the Duke of Orleans wrote to his wife while being held in the Tower of London after the 1415 Battle of Agincourt. And it translates to, I am already sick of love, my very gentle Valentine. Oh, and I think I would guess that where he says sick of love, it would be as if we were saying sick with love. Yeah, that's probably otherwise how that it's not is. very nice. Yeah, it's like <laughs> hi, I'm so 
I'm imprisoned and I'm sick and tired of you. Like, yeah. <laughs> that'd be an incredible sentiment to have. The oldest surviving Valentine's Day message in English was sent in 1477 from a woman named Marjorie Bruce to her fiancé, John Paston. It is a letter wherein she describes her fiancé as her, quote, right, well-beloved Valentine. I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that was probably a custom of all the wealthy, rich people of this Valentine stuff. Mm-hmm. That, like, the underlings were like, yeah, it's just Tuesday to us. Like, it's... <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I hate to speak of Valentine's Day in general because I haven't um, researched it as much and I might get some details wrong. But in a very general sense, I think even the common people got into it, especially during the medieval era. I think that they... Um, would get all together in February and then they would draw names, I think. Okay. And that would be your Valentine for the year, which isn't very romantic, <laughs> I guess. Like the guys would pin that name to their uh, clothing, and if I'm remembering correctly, and that'd be their Valentine. So um, even poorer people would get into Valentine's Day, but I, they probably weren't sending each other letters. They probably weren't sending each other cards. Um, I think literacy alone... Uh, but yeah. also the cost of paper, maybe. But yeah, they, they were celebrating in some way. Um, interestingly enough, since we're on the topic of Valentine's Day, uh, during the reign of Oliver Cromwell, Valentine's Day was banned. Uh, he, he is exactly the type of person that like, oh, you're enjoying this? It's not allowed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're having you're having fun. No. Yeah, so there was a brief period of time in the late 1600s where we probably don't have any surviving valentines because as a holiday it wasn't supposed to be celebrated. I, when you know I bet when they got through that Cromwell business, they, like so many things opened up. It was like a party. I bet it yeah, I bet <laughs> like, it was like, a lot wow, different. We can do all this stuff again. again valentines, let's go. And it made the monarchy more popular, probably. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really good PR move. King George brought Valentine's back. Or Charles, probably. Charles yeah, it was the Charles the second. second. Yeah, yeah. Uh, brought Valentine's Day back. Yep. He and he did. He brought Valentine's Day back. Um, so, moving from correspondence in general to specific Valentine cards. Giving someone a card for Valentine's Day is pretty old custom. It goes back centuries, but it wasn't always the most common Valentine's Day custom. In the 1600s, for example, uh, presumably not during the reign of Cromwell, people gave gloves instead of cards. And I dig that because that's useful. That That's an interesting... Yeah, here's your gloves. And they probably did need gloves because... I know during um, the 1500s, and I don't know if this would have still been true the next century, England was going through what I think they called the Little Ice Age. So things were much colder um, than I guess they typically already get in England. Uh, so gloves in the middle of winter, that's a great gift. Another good example of why context matters, because I could imagine you're, you're looking through diaries and stuff, and they just say, I received a pair of gloves from that. And, you're th and a modern person would be like, so, yeah, that's true. <laughs> what big deal? You got gloves, whereas you know, there's there's a symbolicness behind yeah, that, I guess. That that is very true. Valentine's Day cards instead of gloves or some other kind of trinket. It really, even though it was happening, it didn't really begin in earnest until the 18th century. And 18th century Valentines were, unsurprisingly, they were usually handmade, featuring symbols like flowers. 
love knots and had poetry and puzzles on them. However, even this far back, some Valentines were pre-printed, which kind of surprised me. The oldest ready-made card that survives today is from 1797. Oh, I bet it's a humdinger of a joke. Uh, it's not funny. <laughs> it's from a woman named Catherine Mosday to a Mr. Brown. It has flowers and cupids on it and the message, Since on this ever happy day, all nature's full of love and play, yet harmless still if my design, tis but to be your valentine. Uh, yeah, you got to make it rhyme. Yep, lo- lots of rhymes. In the uh, Victorian era, they considered valentines as two different kinds of cards. There were sentimental cards and there were comical cards. And I think um, you get more and more comical cards as time goes on, but the earlier ones are more romantic and serious in nature. By the 19th century, so speaking of the Victorian era, valentine cards were very common most of them still handmade, and many women's magazines printed instructions for making them. Nice. Some 19th century people who were making their own cards also took advantage of, this is going to sound kind of funny, but new paper technology. (laughs) I I get it. (laughs) Okay, yeah. So in the past, paper was just like plain paper, but around this time, people had more options for paper that had like ornamental edges or printed designs. So if you're not very good, you're not at like crafty stuff and you don't think you'll make a very good Valentine for someone... Uh, you could buy this more ornamental-looking paper and just write your message on it, and boom, Valentine. Kind of clever. By the mid-1820s, around 200,000 Valentines were given in London alone. In Shout out a- to that postman. Oh, oh you're right. <laughs> well, speaking of the post, in 1840, uh, England also enacted the Uniform Penny Post, which we talked about in our episode on Christmas cards. So again, if you haven't listened, that's a great episode to go back and listen to. And that allowed people to send items for a penny, and this increased the popularity of sending valentines. By the late 1840s, the number of cards circulated in Britain had doubled, and over the following two decades, that number doubled again. Hmm. Victorian-era cards featured paper lace, embossed letters, intricate designs, uh, and, of course, the more elaborate the card, the more expensive it was. So you... Just like Valentine's Day gifts today, you kind of had to be mindful of what you were sending because the recipient could tell if you had spent a lot of money. Oh, so... uh, Yeah, so to get those nice decorative features, you had to pony up. They're holding it up to the light to see what thickness it is. Yes. (laughs) Sniffing the ink. No, this is is that common... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Didn't didn't care enough to send the very best... Images on Victorian-era cards included flowers, love knots, Cupid shows up a lot. Oddly enough, um, even though you're really hard-pressed to find a valentine today that doesn't have a heart on it, during the Victorian era, it wasn't as common to use hearts. They existed, um, but you don't find them as often as you find other uh, pieces of like love imagery. Another uh, popular image, in addition to like flowers and Cupid, were birds. And this probably ties back to medieval folklore claiming that birds found their mates in February. Weren't weren't birds a big thing on early Christmas cards? Uh, 
I think you will see robins because okay. they said that they evoked the idea of childhood. Oh. And these Victorian Christmas cards sometimes wanted to be like... Um, emotionally evocative so that you would remember charity mm, at that time okay. of year. So they would use Robins cause you would think of poor little children. Very good. You're, you have a good memory better than mine sometimes. <laughs> um, so yeah, birds show up on Valentine's too, but for a different reason because the bird pairs, uh, reminded people of Valentine's day because, uh, there was this medieval thing about, birds finding their mates in February. And when I read that, it was listed as medieval folklore. And I thought, but do birds do that? Maybe they do. And maybe that's why people thought it. And in which case it'd be a fact. Some birds do find their mates in February, but that's considered like early mating. Uh, so most birds do it a little bit later. They, they just found it and like, we'll run with it. Like yeah. there's just a little bit of evidence. So yeah, we're going to make it, we're going with that's That's a thing. This lines up with our pre-existing holiday. Yes. yes. So <laughs> we're so just going to go with it. Have to make it work. Many Valentines from the Victorian era are also quite clever. One surviving Victorian Valentine has a message that says, look at the one I love printed below a tiny mirror. Oh, nice. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> the York Castle Museum has a valentine with a lock of hair attached, and the card reads, For the new woman, with St. Valentine's heartiest greetings and best hopes that she will receive another mustache with a man attached. Okay, I didn't know where that was going. <laughs> You're going to get another mustache. What? Another. Well, the hair that's attached yeah, to the card is, is supposed to be a mustache. Must okay. So here's one, and I hope the next mustache you get has a man attached uh. to it sassy that, that is yeah <laughs> some victorian valentines were in what was called a beehive or a cobweb design where the paper was cut in such a way that lifting it with a thread revealed a picture beneath that is cool mm -hmm. others included puzzles and moving parts so they got very elaborate and there were even valentines for the blind with embossed images and braille messages, which seems so ahead of its time. I was going to say, this doesn't seem like a time period that they would really take that into consideration. I know, but I guess uh, enough people bought them that it was worth printing them. So it was good business sense, I guess. Yeah. America adopted Valentine cards in the mid-1800s, and they became popular because they were considered a British fashion. Mm. <laughs> and I think, uh, I can't remember which episode it was, but I believe it was one of our Christmas episodes, talked about how especially on the East Coast, the upper class was very uh, into British culture and what was popular there at the time. So that's probably why Valentine's caught on in the mid-1800s too, because around that same time, Christmas customs that England had were also catching on because uh, that was considered in vogue by the upper class who lived on the East Coast of the U.S. I was wondering if maybe because it's the wealthy affluent there on the East Coast, so they are more likely to visit England. Maybe. or And also maybe anyone from England is going to stop there first. Yeah, that's true. Maybe that's the that's the reason why the East Coast had such, like, yes, we're going hard on British customs. Yeah. Maybe. I, I'm not really sure. I know that, like, there was also sort of um, the upper class had certain dealings with, uh, the in America had dealings with the British upper class, and that's where you would see uh, 
these instances of American heiresses marrying British aristocracy because then the um, aristocratic family gets money and the nouveau riche in America get uh, social standing. Uh, somebody wrote a book on American heiresses, and I can't remember what it's called, um, but I'll post it on Instagram if I find it and remember. But yeah, that probably had a lot to do with it. In an 1848 letter to her brother, Emily Dickinson references mm. the, practice, the practice of sending valentines at her school, Holyoke Female Seminary, which doesn't that sound like a really fun place yeah, to go? Boy, huh? <laughs> she said uh, that one of her teachers announced to all of the students that they weren't allowed to send, quote, any of those foolish notes called valentines. Yeah, I get it. It's probably disruptive. It's disruptive, yeah. And we don't need that drama. <laughs> it's just going to create more headaches. Fellow Holyoke graduate Esther Howland, who I believe graduated the year before Emily Dickinson wrote that letter, founded uh, her own business on making valentines that were pre-made. She did this by uh, hiring a bunch of other young women, and they created a valentine card assembly line on the top floor of her father's house. So each person was responsible for doing one detail and you pass it down the line. Uh. Her Valentines were really elaborate. They were three dimensional. They were embossed. They used lots of um, expensive colored papers and she sold them for $5 each, which is the equivalent of over a hundred dollars today. Wow. Yes. Wow. But people must have bought them because she was very successful. She made around $100,000 a year selling these Valentines. Look, look I, I really love you, but I don't know that I'm going to spend $100 on a Valentine's Day uh, card for you. I know. Uh, I, <laughs> I mean, wouldn't expect you to. That's, that's wow. It better do something it, really nifty. <laughs> I was gonna say it better be you better be like it better be like an heirloom or something you're gonna hold on to for a long time. Yes. <laughs> Her business was so popular that eventually it was bought out by another card maker. George C. Whitney bought her business in 1879, and upon purchasing it, um, he did not use the same handmade system she had. He switched to making cards with printing presses. Another change he made was the use of hearts. He began using hearts on his cards and sometimes made the card itself heart-shaped. So whereas I guess uh, in the earlier 19th century, we didn't see a lot of hearts, maybe in the later half, maybe that's when those started becoming more popular, I guess, because they're popular enough for him to actually make them heart-shaped, um, whereas you wouldn't even see a heart very often before. Uh, Whitney was not alone in creating a Valentine's business. New printing technologies led several entrepreneurs to start mass-producing Valentine cards around this time. These pre-made Valentines often came with a blank area for a handwritten message, and if you weren't very good at handwriting a message, you couldn't think of anything to write, or maybe your handwriting's that not that good, you could sometimes buy a printed message that pasted into the card. That's slick. It is. That's, so you, yeah. you pick your card, then you pick your message, you put them together. Pretty clever. Although best known for his Christmas cards, another 19th century maker of American va Valentines was German immigrant Louis Prang, who had previously worked as a magazine engraver in Boston. He had learned of a printing process called chromolithography in Europe. Chromolithography used 
lots of different printing plates, uh, sometimes up to 20 plates, that would create these multicolored images um, that I guess if you wanted that same level of multicolor quality, you would have to hand do it, mm-hmm. but he was able to print it, which was a really big deal. Moving into the 20th century, things were just getting more and more elaborate. Valentines were featuring fringe, ribbons, silk cords. Uh, German manufacturers were producing mechanical valentines that folded out into 3D scenes. Uh, Another addition was the use of honeycomb paper, which we still have today. You know, if you go out and buy those hearts that you're supposed to tack up to the wall and they fold out and there's that tissue paper in like a web kind of a pattern that pops out. Um, that's honeycomb paper. So around the turn of the century, we started seeing that used on Valentine's as well. In fact, some early 20th century Valentine's were of such a shape or size that you couldn't put it in an envelope. You had to mail it in a box. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and this was not necessarily a good thing, though, because the more elaborate they became, the more expensive they became. And so around the turn of the century, you have the height of Valentine uh, card ornate designs. You know, they got the most elaborate and ornate that they had ever been, but they were also the least popular that they had ever been, probably, because uh, people didn't want to shell out money to buy them. And perhaps people were still making their own, I'm guessing, but they just weren't buying them because they were so expensive. However, this did not last long. The creation of greeting card companies like Hall's Brothers, who later became Hallmark, allowed people to buy more inexpensive mass-produced Valentines, and even children could afford them. And children were already becoming a part of Valentine giving because those German mechanical cards, even though they started out as something for one adult to give another adult, um, they very quickly became something that you were more likely to give a child, probably because they were um, almost like a toy, Mm -hmm. you know, so you could give them to a child and they really enjoy playing with the mechanical card. Um, So I think more and more Valentine's become something inclusive of children because children are being given the more uh, toy-like cards. They're also able to purchase Valentine's themselves because companies like Halls Brothers are mass-producing them and making them very cheap. Uh, Hallmark, by the way, began selling Valentine cards in 1913, but they were not using their own design. They had bought designs from others. They started making their own Valentine card designs in 1916. Um, So depending on where you count their start, it was either 1913 or 1916, whether or not you think it's important that they were making their own designs. The flagging use of Valentines around the turn of the century um, was also bolstered by something else, not just these greeting card companies, but by the popularity of postcards. So if you didn't want to spend a lot of money on this big Valentine that had to be sent in a box, (laughs) you could send a postcard for a penny. Yes. Postcards had really become in vogue thanks to a postcard fad that started at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition. So going into the turn of the century, postcards in general were really popular. 
The penny post, which was also adopted in the U.S. by this time, uh, was very popular, so you could send them cheaply, and so why not Valentine's? I think we need to bring postcards back. Mm-hmm. Because I get that people don't want to write a big, huge letter or anything, mm-hmm. but a postcard would be great. Yeah. Uh, so I say, let's start a trend. Everybody go send a postcard to someone right now. Well, and if you go to touristy places, they still they sell still postcards. Sell, yeah. But I think, and I used to remember this being this way, they need to also sell stamps and, a, ju- and have yes. a box to post them in so that yeah. you can like do it all in one whack at the place where you bought it. Oh, yeah. So I know I'll buy postcards, but then I just put them in a scrapbook. I don't end up sending them. But maybe I should. We have a lovely postcard that your aunt sent us from Key West called The Cat's Picnic. And it's a bunch of cats eating uh, at Hemingway's Hemingway's house house in Key West. And we have that on our fridge. So, yeah, we really enjoy that one. Uh, I think I would enjoy getting more postcards. People should bring that back. Well, especially on postcards, this is when we get into the more comical valentine's cards that have the really bad puns so if you've seen those posted online various places they're probably from around the turn of the century or just the early 20th century um, because that's when they started to become more and more popular Um, early 20th century valentine's for children sometimes used characters from comic strips or radio programs which surprised me because I, I think of today's Valentine's as being very tied to licensed properties and fictional characters. Like you go buy a Barbie Valentine or whatever, but I don't think of cards that far back as doing that. But they had comic strips and they had radio shows, maybe Little Orphan Annie or something say, like that. I was, I was thinking of the gimmicky, like, wh- why are there G.I. Joe Valentines? <laughs> like, why is that a <laughs> Because thing? the whole message of that show is <laughs> love. love. Uh, but yeah, there probably was Little Orphan Annie mm-hmm. something. Probably. In the classroom Valentine exchanges that you and I were talking about at the beginning of the episode where children make their own decorated boxes and everybody, you go around the class giving everybody a valentine. The beginning of that is a little fuzzy. It's believed to have began in the U.S. in either the early 1900s or perhaps a little bit before, but it became widespread after World War II. So that's when it became super popular throughout the country. That's a lot earlier than I expected. Me too. I thought it was going to be like a 60s thing. You know, I would have thought it would be a 60s thing too. Especially because, again, um, this practice led to the production of those prepackaged sets of Valentines, which are often decorated according to some sort of fictional mm-hmm. character. So by the 60s, you had all of these television shows um, and cartoons to pull from. But just like licensed characters on Valentines go back much further than that, um, these prepackaged sets and kids. Uh, exchanging them goes back a few decades earlier than that too and even in these early sets just like today's kits they also typically included one special card for the teacher yeah i'm I'm just imagining if there's an episode of mad men where don draper has to rush out and get like he's like how many kids are in your classroom 26 well they're only in packages of 25 (laughs) (laughs) so somebody's gonna have to go with that one (laughs) they do reference this on mad men um Sally comes home from school and says that they all exchanged Valentine's Day 
uh, cards and Betty asks her, well, did you get one? And Sally says, well, everybody got one. Like you go around, you give everybody a Valentine's day. And Betty was like, well, that's not very special. (laughs) And I actually have to agree with Betty. I don't want people to feel left out or like no one likes them, but I also feel like swinging hard the other way where you have to give everybody a Valentine makes it meaningless. Yeah. So of course, Mad Men references it. Mad Men has everything. So it is to mid-century America what I think Seinfeld was, or maybe The Simpsons would probably be a better example to like the end of the century, I think. It references everything you can think of. Um, Today, animals are amongst the most popular images on Valentine's, so no longer are things like cupids or lover's knots (laughs) the most popular. Uh, Animals are the thing. And that might be because children are now the most common recipients. We're no longer giving it to lovers. We're giving them to children. So let's play my favorite game. Okay. True or false. I'm going to tell you some things about Valentine's, and I want you to tell me whether these statements are true or false. Okay. Some Victorians sent each other insult Valentines. Oh, true. Yes. During the mid-19th century, some people started giving out cards called Vinegar Valentines, which jokingly insulted the recipient. Men could send each other Vinegar Valentines <laughs> making fun of each other for things like baldness or alcoholism. Oh, the baldness, I don't know, that's natural to rib somebody over that, but alcoholism seems a little aggressive. I know. Like, aha, uh-huh, you have a problem. Women were not immune either. Um, often vinegar valentines to women made fun of them for their looks or because they thought that they were like a gossip. Spinsters were a frequent target as well. Like, haha, you're still not married. Oh, in the U- oh, it gets worse. In the U.S., vinegar valentines also tended to mock lower-class minorities, such as black people oh. and the Irish. Oh, my gosh. I know. Oh. Vinegar valentines were usually sent anonymously, which makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> and as an added insult, people had the option of sending uh, vinegar valentines without postage, because back then, I don't know when this practice stopped, But uh, long ago, you could send somebody something in the mail without postage, and in order to get it, they would have to pay the postage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they, if they wanted the Valentine, they would have to pay the postage, and then they would open it and find out that it's an insult Valentine. Oh, man. How about this statement? True or false? The U.S. government paid the postage for Valentine's sent to and from troops during World War II as a morale booster. Uh, I'm going to say yes. That is false. Oh, false. Okay. One card maker named his child Valentine. Oh, probably true. It is true. The Museum of London has a collection of over 1,700 Victorian Valentines from the archive of cardmaker Jonathan King. If you're interested in seeing these, they've been digitized, so you can probably view some or all of them online. Uh, One of the cards in the collection is believed to have been used by him to propose to his wife. Oh, It's really sweet. The card is really elaborate. It's got lace, embroidery. It's got beads and ribbons and shells. And inside it has a secret card, 
with a paper chest of drawers, and you can open each drawer. And, and each one's a vinegar valentine. <laughs> each one's an insult. No, <laughs> actually quite the opposite. Each drawer lists a virtue, and the oh. last drawer contains the image of a gold ring. Oh. And that's why they think he probably used it to propose. I would, I would, it, if not That'd that, be really what misleading. A, what else, <laughs> yeah, what else would it be for? Like, imagine some poor guy's like, ah, desperate. Yeah, this one sends it off, and he's not realizing it's basically a proposal. He doesn't understand there's a secret yeah, card inside. He, he didn't even see it. And yeah. his, girl, his girl's like, oh, he, he asked. And he's like, I, I did what? I, oh. <laughs> But getting to the name of Jonathan King's child, he and his wife uh, must have been happy together because they had 15 children. Oh, my goodness. And one of them was named Valentine. Well, you probably just ran out of name options. Like, <laughs> I mean, 15. That's, I don't know. Oh, uh, what, yeah, val- what's around Valentine's, here? You're yeah. going to be named Candle. <laughs> and you're going to be named Valentine. How about this statement? True or false? The message on one Valentine nearly leaked vital Cold War intel. Oh, I'm going to say true because I want it to be true. False. Oh, darn. I'm getting really good at making these up. How about this one? If you didn't know what to write on a Valentine, professionals sold books to help you with the message. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds... This is true. In the early 19th century, some people began selling six-penny pamphlets called Valentine Writers with pre-written messages that you could use on Valentines. Valentine Writers had advice for romantic messages, funny messages, messages that women could send in response to a Valentine they had already received. There were even messages that were specific to people who had certain jobs. Some Valentine writers were just for women, such as the Ladies' Own Valentine Writer and People's Valentine Writer by a literary lady. Other Valentine writers from the turn of the 19th century included the Young Man's Valentine, St. Valentine's Sentimental Writer, and my favorite, just because of the author's name, Introductory Treatise on the Composition of a Valentine by by a Master of Hearts. Oh, (laughs) The Master of Hearts, by the way, took umbrage with the, quote, trashy, coarse, and sometimes disgusting productions, which soon after Christmas began annually to people the huckster's shop windows in the shape of penny valentines. He goes on to write... They're not holding the true spirit of... It's too commercialized. It's too commercial now, yeah. He goes on to write... Quote, in writing Valentines, the very best way of all is to write an original one. Nothing can be so telling or so pungent. <laughs> oh, that's no, no. Not a good word. No, not change that. <laughs> As an immediate emanation from your own heart. He was telling them what to say. Yeah, They're not emanations uh, from their own hearts. <laughs> he's probably like, yes, those people are doing it wrong, but I'm doing it right. Don't My give words, money to them. Give money to me. Yes, I'm doing it right. They're doing it wrong. Don't you want your Valentines to be as pungent as possible? Absolutely not. Oh, such a weird word to use. How about this statement? Andy Warhol has illustrated Valentines. I uh, Probably, yeah. Nope. Oh, darn. Norman Rockwell has illustrated Valentines. Surely he did. He did. Yeah. Famous artists such as Norman Rockwell, Grace Drayton, and Francis Brundage all illustrated Valentines during the 20s and the 30s. 
And on that note, uh, that is all we have for today on Valentine's. So mm-hmm. if you if you have any really cool ones you want to share with us, get on Instagram uh, and let us know and check our stories for uh, some interesting turn-of-the-century Valentines that I found online. They're cool. They're worth checking out. (laughs) That's all for us today. Thank you for listening. Please help us grow by giving us a five-star rating on your listening platform. And follow us on Instagram by searching for hypnotic.history or by clicking the link in the episode description. Until next time, listeners, peace and love.